Uh, if you've got a Bible on you, why don't you grab it? It's easy. Go straight to the end. And uh, the last book of the Bible, we're reading from Revelation 1 today as we kick off this series. We're reading from Revelation 1, verses 9 to 20 as we get started. The words will appear behind me, um, and so you can read along with me now. This is God's Word. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive and forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you've seen, what is now and what will take place later? The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And we thank God for his word, which still speaks to us today. I wonder if amongst all of the hustle bustle of the Christmas, New Year, holiday that you're just finished with. I'm sorry to tell you, it's over. Some people clinging on with the Christmas lights still up. See, Victoria Square is still clinging on with the Christmas lights. It's done, guys, right? I wonder if amongst all of that, in, in between it all, you took some time and you made any resolutions. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to tell me what they are because you've probably already broken them, right? Statistically, you normally break them within like the first five days or whatever it is. But amongst all of the eating too much, family gatherings, rubbish TV, beach walks and lateral flow tests, did you get round to making some plans for this next year? Did you get around to making resolutions, things you were going to do different and things that you were going to do, the sort of person you were going to be as you look forward into 2022? I wonder if you took some time to do that. Because where we find ourselves right now, the world in which we live in, looking forward isn't all that easy. Writing in the New York Times, Kayleen Schaefer describes it as future block, right? And this is what she says. In March 2020, when the pandemic sent people into their homes and subsumed so much of what seemed certain about the world, it was clear this control was an illusion. No matter how much we planned, life could be forceful and unexpected and upend everything. And so now, even as we're optimistic about re-emerging and pointing ourselves toward long-term goals again, plotting the 
the future can feel daunting or almost downright impossible. Many people's crystal balls are foggy and filled with anxiety. We're not sure. After over a year of possibly anticipating no farther than when we might finish that 1,000-piece puzzle, what to do with the life we're still lucky to have. Future block. It's hard to look forward in the moment that we're in. And then on one hand, you have the legitimate kind of feeling of, oh, I find it hard to plan or think ahead because like, you know, things could change next week. Things could change tomorrow. Like stuff could change in a moment. And then on the other hand, we have like the world of social media and inspirational quotes, right? Memes and videos telling you that 2022 is the year, and I've just lifted a few of them, where you create a life you don't need a vacation from, right? Where you start visualizing what you want, then say no to anything that isn't it. Buy the plane ticket, quit the job, plan the trip, wander into the unknown, open your heart, take the leap. We're into the deep stuff this morning here, guys, right? On one hand, you have this realistic sense of like, I don't know how to look forward. I'm kind of stuck where I am. I've been in my house for two years. I don't know how to plan what my life is going to look like in this next year. And then the other side, this like over-optimistic, just say nice things. And if you say them often enough, your life will surely get there. But honestly, what are you looking forward to? Genuinely. As you look forward down the track, hopefully in a world a little bit more optimistic, a little bit more open, with options a little bit more available than maybe they were before, what are you looking forward to? A lot of the time we like to live our lives towards some sort of idea or picture of the future, don't we? We like to sort of visualize or kind of see where we're going to go. I mean, for example, men's health magazines, right? The cover of men's health magazine is not like Darren, who's 39 and let himself go a little bit, right? That's not on the cover of men's health. It's the body you want, right? Whenever you see those spangly Instagram ads, it's the body and the clothing and the setting that you want so that you live your life towards it, isn't it? We don't tend to start relationships with people unless we can see this having a future. We take degrees with a picture of the job that we'll get at the end. We start jobs with an eye on the corner office or the role that we really want. And we even do things like roll into the new year with a picture of how 2022 is going to go. Most of us live with a picture of the future, don't we? If we're really honest, we live towards whatever that picture is of the house, of the girlfriend, of the job, of the car, of the holiday. We live with a picture of the future, where we're going, where we want to be. So the catastrophizers in the room, my wife is one, right? You're already thinking about all the things that might go wrong on the way to that picture, right? And the over-optimists are already thinking about how you're going to not just get those, but smash through all of those goals and go even further, a picture of the future. And that's exactly what we're getting when we come to the book of Revelation. A picture of the future. And starting off this new year, we're kicking off this new series today based in the book of Revelation, obviously to make things super easy for us and not head melty at all at the start of a new year. And I say that because Revelation is fairly well known as one of the Bible's most difficult books, okay? 
Most of the time we just avoid it, if we're honest, or we kind of think of it as just that like bonkers book at the end of the Bible, which it kind of is in a bit, or confusing, right? So we just don't really go where. Even the great reformer, Martin Luther, famously had a distrust for revelation. He didn't write a commentary on it, and he was quoted once as saying, a revelation should be revealing, right? In some sort of like puritanical voice that I can't replicate today, right? But he he was quoted as, as saying that, right? So it's a difficult book, and there's lots of reasons for it to be difficult. Mostly, though, if we had to kind of short-form them into an answer as to why it's mostly difficult, it's because of the kind of book that it is. Revelation is a book made up of three genres, okay? Uh, There are kind of three types of book in this one book, right? Apocalypse, prophecy, and letter. It is all three of those things. Actually, the first verse, the very first verse, Revelation 1.1 makes that perfectly clear. This is what it says. The revelation, there's that word from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, there's the prophecy bit, what must soon take place. And this is obviously a letter that you're reading. There's all three in the first verse of the book. Apocalypse, right? That's the word that we read as revelation is apocalypsis in Greek. So it's apocalypse, right? And prophecy, they're there in that very first verse. But in the main, the book is apocalypse, right? And that's a problem because that's a kind of writing that we don't really have in our world anymore. So we know the Bible is a collection of books, right? And, and those books are all kind of genres along the way, things like law, things like letters, narrative, wisdom, and so on and so on. And the thing is, we can kind of get those because they still exist today, don't they? So you know what law, legal stuff reads like. You know what letters read like. You know what narrative reads like. We have parallels so that when we come to the Bible, it's quite easy in a way to understand how they work and what's going on, but we don't have a parallel for apocalypse. An apocalyptic writing was pretty common in biblical times. Actually, as a style of writing, it's visible not just in Revelation, but in your Bible, you'll find it in other books like Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the Psalms. They all have sections of apocalyptic writing. And it has some key features, okay? Uh, if, If you want to kind of recognize it for what it is, it has some things that make it what it is. It's always written in and born from times of crisis, right? Apocalypse always comes from that sort of context. Crisis, oppression, persecution, famine, challenge, just crisis times. It's written from there. It's usually written in the form of visions or dreams. It's written as literature. So therefore, it's full of fantastical imagery and those sorts of things. These are key aspects to apocalyptic writing. But more than anything, more than anything, Because of the place that they are written from. Crisis, persecution, oppression, difficulty, pain. They always look forward. They're written looking forward, not back. Not even really with an eye on where they are right then. They're always written looking forward. Gordon Fee writes this, The great concern is no longer with God's activity within history. The apocalyptists, what a word, by the way, looked forward to the time when God would bring a violent end to history, an end that would mean the triumph of good and the final judgment of evil. They are looking way forward. In other words, this is a picture from the pain of where we stand right now. 
Revelation is the Bible's one day. One day. One day. Of the 28 references to the word, so, so what is the most kind of broad way to interpret what that one day will be, okay? The most broad way that you can think about Revelation, if anyone ever asks you what on earth's going on in that Revelation book, I mean, I know that's a really common topical conversation in the workplace, right? But if anyone ever asks you about that, right, in the broadest sense, what's really going on in Revelation? Jesus, victory, overcoming. In the broad sense, that's the message of Revelation. Jesus, victory, overcoming. There's 28 references to the word overcome. And I'll guarantee you that at least one person this morning has it on their shoes, okay? Because Nike is the word, the word we get our Nike swoosh from. It's the word for overcome, right? It appears 28 times in the Bible. And of those 28 times, 17 of them are in Revelation. One day at the end overcoming. This is a picture of the future. And a big part of that future is the church. And that's found in these seven letters to seven churches, which make up the next kind of section of Revelation. If your Bible's in front of you, you will see then that they just come one after another uh, as they're written to these seven churches. And that's going to be the focus of this series. It also Completely coincidentally, you understand, happens to be probably the only part of Revelation that's easily understandable and uniformly agreed on, okay? So what a coincidence. Who could have known, right? I haven't made it easy at all. But why these churches, okay? Just uh, as a kind of broad question, they aren't especially significant. They're not especially strategic. It's likely because they were on a well-known route in Asia Minor, and these letters were written as circulars, which is a kind of letter written which was read not just by one church, but by all of them and by us today. This is a picture of the future church. In seven images, it's a picture of the future church. And as we start this series, there are two things that John writes in this intro that Jesus, I think, wants us to see and wants us to know that are right at the heart of the future church. Before we get into what he said to those seven churches and what those kind of parallels might be saying to us today, I think there's two things John is writing in the intro that he wants, to know, that he wants us to know before we get into the specifics. And the first of these is this, is that he is in the midst. He's in our midst. I wonder um, what kind of person you are when you're sick. I wonder what way you act, how you respond to being sick. See, we found out in the early days of our marriage that Joy and I are very, very different people when we're ill, right? See, Joy, when she's not well, she wants hot water bottles and like jammies and comfort. And more than anything else, she wants to be held when she's ill, right? And so she wants you to be near her. Unfortunately, as it turns out, my daughter has also inherited Joy's traits, right? And so Elle had some sort of tummy bug over Christmas, and you may well already know my feelings on being sick, right? And so she comes down having just boked, Joy having caught it in a basin. She gets down into the living room, sits in the sofa, and she's like, she gets up and she announces, I want daddy cuddles, of which I give her this, like, of course, come over. <laughs> Get away from me, you. 
grim child. Because I'm awful when I'm sick, right? When I'm sick, I'm like, get away from me. I don't want anybody near me. I want to go to a darkened room and just be miserable. I don't want to be both feeling ill and have to accept your sympathy and your affection, right? I want you to go away and leave me alone whenever I don't feel well. And that being sick is one thing, right? But I think things change whenever we suffer. I think things change whenever we're suffering. Because even I have to admit that though I'd push you away when I feel ill, when I'm suffering, I want comfort too. I want to be known. And I want nearness. My friend Dario uh, wrote a blog post in the last week or two about going for a cancer biopsy at the Royal and finding himself in, a, in the waiting room uh, in that Bridgewater suite with lots of other men waiting for the same scan. All of them afraid, all of them nervous. But somehow finding some degree of comfort in the company of others who were going through exactly the same. And when we suffer, grieving, wrestling through the end of a relationship, experiencing poor health, right? We don't want distance, do we? We want people to be close. And writing in these first verses, right? John will write this. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now that word suffering is kind of not sort of deep suffering the sort of, that I was just talking about. In many ways, that word suffering is more like the general tribulation of following Jesus, right? But in truth, his situation wasn't just like ours. John, we think, or most commentators now, there's sort of mostly agreement that it's thought to be the Apostle John. It may not be. It might be another John, but most of them now think it's the Apostle John. He wrote Revelation. And he was on a Greek island because of his testimony. That's what it says in verse 9. He's most likely been sharing Jesus. And as a result of it, the Romans have decided, no, we've had enough of this. We're packing you off to a Greek island, right? Now, it's never been found to be a Roman penal colony, okay? But it's most likely that while he was there, he worked in the mines. And I don't know about you, but working in the mines is not my idea of a Greek holiday, Right? He's been sent to this island in exile. He's probably working the mines. This isn't some sort of holiday or retreat. And most importantly, when we think about what he's about to write and say in these, in these blocks of Scripture, he hadn't gone there to get a vision. This wasn't like a retreat so he could hear God, right? He hasn't gone there to get the vision. He's been exiled there. This certainly isn't life the way I'm sure he pictured it would be. But he's here. And it turns out in the middle of his exile, of his own suffering, Jesus appears to him. And it says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Here's the thing. This is John suffering on an island, writing to churches who, as we'll find out in the weeks ahead, were suffering too, experiencing persecution, poverty, hardship, and suffering themselves. And he gets this vision, 
And it's the seven lampstands. And in verse 20, which we read at the start, you've seen that he interprets his own vision. And he interprets it as saying the seven lampstands are the seven churches, right? So he tells us. He gets this vision of seven lampstands, seven churches. And in the middle of the seven churches, the Son of Man. The first thing that Jesus wants the future church to know is that he is in their midst. He's in our midst. And when we're suffering, presence changes everything, doesn't it? He's in our midst. And the thing is, though, that these weren't just suffering churches. They were, some of them, also failing churches. In Ephesus, love had grown cold. In Pergamum, it wasn't only God who had their attention. Idols, sex, and other religions had too. In Thyatira, they listened to Jezebel too much, and so as a result, sex, idols, and other religions. In Sardis, they were spiritually asleep. In Laodicea, they were lukewarm. These weren't just suffering churches. There were some brilliant things about them, but they were failing churches too. And even though they were all that, he was in the middle of it. He was near. Now, you might think that if you're in the middle of stuffing it up, right, and maybe you are right now, maybe there's habits in your life, there's stuff that you don't want anybody else to see, there's things you're ashamed of, you might think that if you're in the middle of stuffing it up, whatever that looks like, Jesus is the last person you'd like to see you stuffing it up, right? You might think that way, like he's some sort of boss at work or overbearing parent, right? But then just look at what he says to John. John, who has the vision. And we'll get to the rest of what he saw in a moment, right? But he has this vision. He's terrified. He's undone. He's overcome. And the very first thing that Jesus says to him in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive, and forever and ever I hold the keys of death and Hades. Do not be afraid. John, churches, us. That's what he says to us. In this moment right now, this isn't about fear or faith or some stupid meme or quote you've read on Facebook. It's about realizing that his presence, Jesus himself, is right here. And the very first thing he says to John is, do not be afraid. Christmas didn't really work out for us as the break that we were maybe hoping for. We're those like, you know, um, down in the doldrums people that come back into work and everyone goes, well, how was your Christmas? And they all want to hear about, you know, I watched Home Alone and had the best festive time ever, right? It didn't really work out for us like that for whatever reason. Elle had pretty bad asthma at a point and there's a Tommy bug, family life, kids who decided to stop sleeping and for whatever reason, grief decided to show up uh, for me over the Christmas season. It was just exhausting for us. And Joy and I have this phrase that we'll very often say, very often late at night, like three in the morning when you've put your child back to bed for the 16th time and you're kind of just staring at the ceiling and you look to the other person and you'll say, we're in it right now, aren't we? And it's like in the middle, like in the middle of it all, sometimes it feels like it's some sort of protest at God, you know, like we're in the middle of it, where are you? 
You know, we're stuck here right now. What are you doing? As if he isn't right here. As if while we suffer, as if while we struggle, as if while we feel, it isn't true that Jesus' first words to the church were, I'm in the middle of it with you. You know, the devil wants us to believe that God is the one who makes us miserable, that he's powerless, that he's absent, that he's disinterested, that he's somewhere else while we have to go through the stuff that we go through. And yet Jesus' words about holding the keys of death and Hades, right? He's trying to tell us, he's trying to tell them that he is alive and trying to tell them that he's the only one that can do anything about the stuff in our lives, the sin, the suffering, and everything else. The one who conquered death, the one who is handing out the prison keys, is the one who is in their midst. Tozer wrote these words over 60 years ago. The world is perishing for lack of the knowledge of God, and the church is famishing for want of his presence. The future church knows that he is in the middle of it all and seeks him desperately in the middle of it all. He's in our midst. And that's the first thing that that Jesus wants the future church to know, that he is here. And the second thing is that we might reimagine him. That we might reimagine him. And the question is really, I wonder how you picture Jesus. I wonder when you think about him or when you talk to him or when you read God's word or you just spend time in silence like Helen did earlier on listening. I wonder how you picture Jesus. There is that now infamous scene in Talladega Nights with Ricky Bobby and he does grace and in the grace he prays to dear eight pound six ounce newborn baby Jesus. Don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, so cuddly but yet still omnipotent, right? And then he goes on and the people object to him. He was, he was a grown man, does one of them say that or whatever. And they object to him praying to the baby Jesus. And in that, in that line, he says, I like the Christmas Jesus best. When you're saying grace, you can pray to whatever version of Jesus you want. Bearded Jesus, old Jesus, whatever, right? And that's what he says at that point in the prayer. And I say that today because so often in our Christian life, the picture that we have of Jesus is flat, Right? Like we make choices, don't we? We like either the hard version of Jesus, the one who has hard words to say about the sorts of things that we would want them to have hard words to say about. Or we like the soft Jesus, right? The one that says, let the little children come to me. We like that version. Or we like the Jesus that's the table turner, the radical, you know, the one that is like on the fringes of society, like people don't like him. We like that version. Or we like the all-loving one. We like one or other, but rarely both. And then John gets this vision, and this is what he says. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. It's an incredible vision of Jesus, isn't it? It's dazzling. 
I'll bet when I asked that question earlier on about how you, see, how you see Jesus, you don't see him like that. But that's how John saw him that day on an island in Patmos. William Barclay in his commentary remarks on the clothing that he's wearing and the vision, that they can be parallel to that worn by priests, to that worn by prophets, and to that worn by kings. In other words, this vision of Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king, right? But I have to say, my first thought when I read it was not about the clothing that he's wearing, right? It's about his physical features that get me. It's the hair white as snow, his eyes blazing like fire, feet of glowing bronze, voice like rushing rivers, face shining like the sun. What's even more incredible to me about this is that if this was if this was the Apostle John. What blows my mind even more about this is that this was the John who actually walked with Jesus. This was the same John who rested back with his head on Jesus' chest. That's how intimately he knew him. That's how intimately he would have seen him. And yet John gets this vision of Jesus. And what is the result of the vision? Well, the result is that he's terrified. He fell down on the ground as though dead. And this is not the only time that this happens in Scripture either, when people meet Jesus. Paul famously on the Damascus Road, right, is struck blind. But amongst the being struck blind, he was also, he fell down on the ground, absolutely terrified. And there are other, also other experiences through the biblical narrative of other people experiencing exactly the same. And it seems to me that in a world where people spend so much time afraid, there is a kind of fear which is right. That it's possible to, to have fear but not be afraid. N.T. Wright writes this, a Jesus who is mind-blowing, dramatically powerful, but also gentle and caring. A Jesus in and through whom we see his Father, God, and Creator. A Jesus who has spoken and still speaks words which explain what is going on in the present and warn of what will happen in the future. I wonder, are we too comfortable with Jesus? I wonder, are we too comfortable with him? Are we desensitized somehow? You know, we've read so many things. We've seen so many images. We've been a Christian a while. I wonder if somehow, like so many other things, we get desensitized. Like in our, as we went through our Christmas series and we looked at Mary's song and, and whatever one in the Christmas series that that was on, and we looked at how Mary was just so much more. She explodes our idea of how she's just Mary the mother mild, you know, tender, meek, lowly. Actually, she was so much more than that. She was both meek and mild, but also she was bold. She was revolutionary. It explodes our picture of who Mary was. And I wonder if we're the same as Jesus at times. We like the soft version. We like the hard version. We like the one who's all comfort. We like the one who's all challenge. Or even worse, we like the Jesus who's just like us. John Mark Comer writes this. What we think about God matters. Who God is has profound implications for who we are. Here's the problem. We usually end up with a God who looks an awful lot like us. Here's how you know if you've created God in your own image. He agrees with you on everything. He hates all the people you hate. He voted for the person you voted for. If you're a Republican, so is he. If you're a Democrat, she is too. If you're passionate about 
then God is also passionate about. If you're open and elastic about sexuality, so is he. And above all, he's tame. You never get mad at him or blown away by him or scared of him because he's controllable. And of course, he's a figment of your imagination. When was the last time you were blown away by Jesus? When was the last time something you read in the Gospels just wrecked you about the life of Jesus, about his words, about his way? When was the last time you prayed and he wrecked you? When was the last time something that Jesus said to you about you, your circumstances, your circle, your life, whatever, it offended you, it got under your skin, it got you in the place where you were like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to give that up. I don't want to change. I don't want to look like that. When was the last time Jesus said something or did something and it went against the way you normally think or do? He's tame. You never get mad at him or blown away by him or scared of him because he's controllable and he's a figment of your imagination. Being honest with yourselves. Do you see a Jesus who suits you? Do you see a picture that you've constructed because it suits you, because it won't force you to change, it won't rock you, it won't challenge you, it won't make you uncomfortable? Because if you do, that's not the vision that John saw. The same John who literally lay on top of him is the John who sees Jesus like this. John didn't see it the way maybe we do sometimes. He saw Jesus who was all of those things and more, who could still be close, but could also be so very far beyond. And here's the thing, right? The vision that he saw, it's not meant to be literal, okay? So if you're sitting here today and you're like, well, I've never seen Jesus with blazing eyes. There's something wrong with me, right? That's not how it works, okay? It's not a literal vision, okay? Like when somebody dies, right? Somebody who's meaningful to you. And when people ask you about them, about who they were and all that sort of stuff, you're not really interested in telling them about how tall they were or, you know, what their physical features, how their teeth were, what color their hair was, right? Those sorts of things don't really interest you if you really cared about the person that you're communicating about. We want them to know not what they look like, but what they were like. We want them to know what they were like and what it was like to be around them. Their sense of humor, their quick wit, how they made you feel, their courage, their compassion, what their life meant and how you were changed by it. We don't want them to know what they looked like. We want them to know what they were like. And that's what this vision is. It's not a vision of what Jesus looks like. It's a vision of what Jesus is like. And lots of these features, although they seem baffling, right? They do have parallels and other scripture verses throughout the Bible. And what do they mean? Well, white hair, unsurprisingly, is very often one of wisdom and one of dignity. Eyes blazing, it's one of judgment and understanding. Feet bronze, it's the purity that he possesses as he moves amongst us. Voice of rushing water, he's the one whose voice is authoritative, powerful, and irresistible. And a face shining is one that shows his holiness, his righteousness, and his goodness. That is who he is. That is what he's like. The future church, this church, I hope, 
in the future, not just the distant future, but like our today. We're a church who needs to know a Jesus who is so far beyond us, who's not like us. He joins us in our humanity, but yet is still so very far beyond us, but who really sees us. And our question is, might we really see him? This is a picture of the future and a picture of the future church. And before we get to what kind of church we might be, what kinds of churches John wrote to, the sorts of things God was trying to say to those churches in order to form them into what they might be like in the future. Before we get to what kind of church, I think today, first of all, we need to rethink what kind of Jesus. John tells us two things. That the church of the future needs to know a Jesus who's in their midst. Who no matter what we're going through, Corporately, individually, we might know that he is in the middle of it. It's not that we're just in it and he's somewhere else. It's that he is in it. And he's the only one that can do anything about the stuff we're in. And second of all, that we might reimagine him as who he truly is. Not the Jesus that suits us, not the one that makes us comfortable. Not the one that we just think it's easy, that never offends us. The one that we control. But the one that he is.